Our scripture reading this morning is Acts 6, 8 through 7, 1, and this is found on page 914 in your pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible in your home, we would love for you to take that one home with you as a gift from us. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedom, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. And brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Kristen, for reading God's Word to us and, and for welcoming us as well. Um, I'll add my welcome to Kristen's. My name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving the Brookside campus of uh, Christ Community uh, as an associate pastor. And I'm so glad that you are here this morning to begin uh, Holy Week. Thank you for uh, starting your week out with us here. And uh, as we open this passage, um, part of which uh, Kristen just read for us. We believe that we need God's help to understand it. And so if you would, bow your heads for, uh, with me uh, for a prayer for God to, to speak to us through his word. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word still speaks today as we read it. And I pray, Father, that we would not resist what it is that you might have for us through your word, but that we would instead receive it with open arms and open hearts that lead to uh, changed lives. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever asked a question that I know I have in my life and I think is common, um, this question of why can it be so hard to know God? Why can it be so hard to know God? Why does experiencing Him so often seem like it's an impossible struggle? Why does God often seem distracted, uh, distant, or even just not really there at all? Well, challenging questions like this one are an understandable objection to the Christian faith. And it's an understandable objection because one of the tenets of the Christian faith is that God wants to be known. We as Christians believe that God desires to reveal himself to his creation. And so the, the thinking goes in this objection, if it's true that God wants to be known, then, then why does he seemingly make it so difficult? Which again is a really fair question. And we're studying the book of Acts, and, and I actually think that if you read the book of Acts one way, uh, it can actually pile on top of this objection. Because in these pages, we read incredible stories of the early church experiencing God in direct, miraculous, and powerful ways. Uh, think about what we have covered in, in just the first five chapters. A man who was born without the ability to walk, he's over 40 years old. 
Peter heals him by the name of Jesus. Peter and, and John, they're arrested for this miracle. And then later, they, the, all of the apostles are arrested, but the prison doors burst open. And through all of this and more that we don't even get to see in these chapters, the number of Christians swell, growing day by day by day. I mean, we read these stories, and I think a natural question for us is, why isn't God acting this way now, here, for us? Or maybe you're here this morning, and you don't claim the Christian faith. You, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And so then maybe you read the book of Acts, and you think, if only God were to do some of these miracles today in my eyesight, then I would believe him. But you see, reading the book of Acts this way it only tells one part of the story, and we ought not forget the full story of the early church because there were two parallel reactions to the first Christians that we see in the opening chapters of Acts. Yes, to be sure, there were stories and happenings of intense devotion and commitment, men, women, and children coming to faith in Jesus and radically turning their lives upside down. But in addition, as we've already telegraphed a bit and covered in previous weeks, there was also intense rejection, intense devotion alongside of intense rejection. This series that we've been in in the book of Acts is called The Beauty of Weakness, The Beauty of Weakness. And as we've walked together towards Easter, unpacking these uh, seemingly two ideas that are in tension with one another, beauty and weakness, we've seen actually the reaction, uh, the rejection of the church intensify. So I mentioned uh, Peter, who heals the man who was born without the ability to walk. Him and John are arrested for that miracle, but really they're arrested because they won't stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is new life available in and through Jesus. And then they're, they're released. The council can't say anything against them. The man who they have healed is standing right there as evidence of God's work, and so Peter and John are released. But then in Acts 5, which Bill covered last week, all of the apostles are arrested. And they're arrested because of what Peter and John were doing. They were preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And this time, the religious leaders, they want to kill the 12 apostles, as they were successfully able to do with Jesus. It's the same group of men, but they opt not to under the advice of one of their own, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And his advice is basically this, if this movement is not of God, it's going to die. We killed their leader after all. But if this movement is of God, then killing these 12 men is not going to matter even in the slightest you can't stand in the way of God. If God's behind this, behind this, killing the apostles won't do a thing. So the apostles are released yet again, but this time they're given this brutal beating, this flogging. It was likely the 40 lashes minus one. And then in our story this morning, which is centered on the early church leader Stephen, we see that he is the first Christian who was killed for his faith in Jesus. And so follow that progression of rejection with me. You've got arrest, release, and then you have arrest, and they're released again, but this time they're flogged. And then with Stephen, there's sort of an arrest, and there's sort of a trial. And how does it end? In murder. From arrest to flogging to murder, even just the span of a few weeks. And so even though God was revealing himself in incredible and miraculous ways, not everyone was on board. And it was not just the religious leaders who rejected the early church either. 
Remember, Acts 5 tells us that there was a large number who, though they held the church in high esteem, opted to not follow the way of Jesus. In fact, even though the number of Christians had swelled and grown to an incredible amount, likely over 20,000 of them, it's still true that far more Jews did not commit their lives to the way of Jesus in the first days of the church. Intense devotion and commitment right alongside intense rejection. Which brings us back to our opening question. Why is it so hard to know God? Why is it so hard to know God? Well, our passage this morning and Stephen's sermon, which is Acts 7 in the middle of our passage, helps us to answer this difficult question. So we're going to enter in together and follow along with this incredible story of the first Christian martyr. You heard Kristen read the beginning of our passage for us just a few moments ago, Acts 6, chapter 8, and in that verse, we see that Stephen is full of grace and power. He is doing great signs and wonders among the people, and it's likely that these signs and wonders contributed to more and more people surrendering their lives to Jesus, and it's interesting to note, Stephen is the first time that we see someone other than an apostle, because he wasn't one of the original 12, doing these incredible signs and wonders. And so God's hand of blessing upon the early church is expanding beyond the original 12 so that his message can reach more and more and more. And the signs and the wonders, they acted as a stamp of approval on the message that these early Christians, including Stephen, were preaching. And so, uh, this work that Stephen had, this ministry, these signs and wonders, as more, more and more come to Christ through it, it angered the Jewish leaders of different synagogues. In their mind, Jesus' gain through Stephen was their loss. So, a number of different synagogue leaders band together to try to discredit, disprove, disagree with uh, Stephen through a debate. And don't miss the parallels that we'll see not just in this moment, but across all of Stephen's story to, to Jesus himself. Because how many different times in the gospel accounts did different groups of people that normally they didn't get along, how many different times did different groups of people band together to try to discredit Jesus, to try to trap him? And each and every time this happened in the life of Jesus, the people failed in their attempts to do that. And it's the same here with Stephen. In Acts 6.10, we read, but they, the group of Jewish synagogue leaders that banded together, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And so they can't prove him wrong in debate in the public forum, and so they have to move to their backup plan. And again, in their backup plan of how to deal with Stephen, we see another parallel to Jesus. Because what they end up doing is contained in Acts 6, 11 through 14, and we'll see that it is exactly what the Jewish leaders had to do to eventually discredit Jesus. Acts 6, 11 through 14. Then they, the same group of people, secretly instigated men who said, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
Well, these verses here set up all of Acts 7. The entirety of Acts 7 is Stephen's sermon. It's, it's his defense, not really of himself, but it's his defense against these two charges. And I've, I've highlighted the two charges because this idea that, that Stephen stood against the holy place and the law, this helps us to make sense of Stephen's sermon. It's the interpretive key that unlocks our understanding to it. Because you read Acts 7, it's, it's hard to read. It's not the easiest read. It's a little bit confusing. He kind of is telling Israel's history, but he kind of meanders through it. And we have to keep in mind that what he's doing is he's answering this dual charge, that he stands against the temple and then he stands against Moses. And if we keep that in mind, then the pieces fall into place of his sermon a bit more. And I want to point out one more contextual note that Luke makes sure to include before we actually get to the sermon. Acts 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I think this is fascinating. And Luke did too. That's why he included it. You see, one part, remember, one part of the charge against Stephen was that he speaks against Moses. But who else experienced this phenomenon of a radiant face? None other than Moses himself. Back in Exodus 34, after coming down from Mount Sinai with the law, Moses has been in the presence of God. He descends from the mountain, and all that looked upon him, Moses saw that his face shined like that of an angel. And so at the exact moment, don't miss this, at the exact moment that, Mo, that Stephen is going to be asked to defend himself against the charge that he stands against Moses, his face shines radiant just like Moses' did. It's an incredible sign of God's favor, a sign that God was with Stephen and that the charges against him were indeed false. And God gives him this sign and the whole room sees it before he even opens his mouth to defend himself. It's incredible. And of course, Stephen does eventually defend himself. He starts in Acts 7-2, and he immediately introduces a key theme that comes back over and over again in his sermon. That verse reads this way, the God of glory appeared, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. The God of glory appeared. Stephen introduces the first father of the Jewish people, Abraham, and he makes sure to draw attention to the fact that God appeared to Abraham in order to begin to address the charge that he stood against the temple. Now, you see, standing against the temple was such a serious charge because in Jewish understanding, the temple was God's home. It was his dwelling place. It was the one place where God would show up to meet with man. But, but, Stephen argues throughout the whole of his sermon, but we've missed something. Our God is not bound by buildings, Stephen says. Remember, he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia long before the temple was built. He spoke to Moses through the burning bush. For goodness sakes, God lived in a movable tent for generations. And then, Stephen says near the end of his sermon, don't forget what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Which that reference to Isaiah 66 is so brilliantly chosen by Stephen because it shows very clearly that while God allowed the construction of the temple, he never commanded it. 
God was fine living in a tent because God is not bound by buildings. And so, Stephen's argument goes to the council, your overemphasis on the temple contributed to you missing that God was doing something new and, dare he says, even better in and through Jesus. The temple is important, yes, but it all points to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And again, don't miss the continuity between Stephen's sermon and between Jesus himself. In fact, one way that we could perfectly sum up this theme of Stephen's and his sermon is by saying what Jesus said of himself in Matthew 12, 6. He's standing with the religious leaders. There's been a controversy about the Sabbath. They have just tried to trap him again. And Jesus looks around at the crowd and the religious leaders and says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And everyone knew that he was referring to himself. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Well, unsurprisingly, it's right after that statement from Jesus that we see the religious leaders come together to conspire about how they can kill him. Not just oppose him or stop him, but Matthew 12, the text says they conspire about how they can destroy him. To allegedly stand against the temple is an incredibly serious charge. But an equally serious charge was to stand against Moses and the law. Remember, this is what is brought against Stephen. He does not cease to speak against this holy place and the law. So how does Stephen deal with this second accusation that he stands and speaks against the law? Well, the bulk of his defense on this point can be found in verses 35 through 42 of Acts 7. And the theme that he draws out and highlights is the theme of resistance, resistance. Verse 39 captures this theme well. Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their heart they turned back to Egypt. The core of Stephen's argument against this accusation laid against him goes something like this. Yes, you revere Moses now, but when he first showed up on the scene, our fathers resisted him, cast him aside even, commanded his brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf. Don't forget Moses' origin story. Resistance is the theme that he draws out to answer this, this uh, accusation. And even broad, more broadly than just the story of Moses, in his sermon, uh, Stephen references Joseph's story. He pulls back further into Israel's history and he said, Joseph's brothers resisted the work that God was doing through him, and then our fathers resisted Moses time and time again. They turned their hearts back to Egypt, and then this theme of resistance comes to its most intense head when he actually steps outside of Israel's history and begins to address his listeners right there in the room. That's at the end of Acts chapter 7. He completes his tour through history, and then he concludes his sermon in verses 51 and 53. And this theme of resistance shows up again. And he's not doing a history lesson anymore. He is speaking directly to the people that have the power to kill him and eventually will kill him. Maybe this is why. Those verses read this way. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist, there it is, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. We'll come back to that. The coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I mean, this is somehow worse than what Peter did <laughs> a few chapters ago. Stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears. What if Bill and I did that? Stephen leaves no doubt about his thoughts toward his accusers. And it's interesting, he flips the script, doesn't he? Uh, he's the one on trial, but the accused becomes the accuser. He says, yeah, 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 technically I'm on trial here, okay, but I'm going to use this platform to point the finger back at you and say, no, actually, you resist the Holy Spirit. You resist what God has done and is doing and will do. And this theme of resistance in Stephen's sermon brings us back to our opening question. Why is it so hard to know God? Why is it hard to know God? And I think Stephen's answer to that question would be this. It's hard to know God because we resist him. It's hard to know God because we resist him. That's the challenge that Stephen lays at the feet of his accusers, and it is the same challenge that he lays at our feet too. Because you see, when it comes to this problem of the difficulty of knowing God, we tend to blame God, don't we? We look up at him and we say, well, you see, God, if you only revealed yourself a little bit more, then I'd follow you. Or if you would do this for me, God, then that would prove yourself to me, and so then I could live or act in this way. We lay the blame of this problem at the feet of God. Folks, the problem isn't with God, it's with us. It's not that God has not revealed himself enough, it's that even when God reveals himself at any time and in any way, we still adopt a stubborn posture of resistance. The problem is not with God, it's with us. This is how it goes with those who encounter Stephen, isn't it? Again, remember, the text tells us God was doing incredible things through Stephen's life and through his ministry, signs and wonders. But not everyone that encountered Stephen, not anyone, everyone that heard his preaching or, or, or was, had the benefit of knowing him or, or had a miracle performed on them by him, not everyone immediately was converted, immediately started following God. In fact, Stephen was met with resistance. What God was doing through Stephen was met with resistance, re rejection. It led to him being murdered. And we do that too. With the work of God, with the revelation of God in our own lives, we do that too. We do the same thing. We make demands of God. Theologian and author Dallas Willard has pointed out this phenomenon, the fallacy of I'll believe in God or I'll do this thing for God if he would just do something for me, if he would just prove himself to me. And he quotes a, a different author, a, a guy named Norwood Hansen, who's a non-Christian. And Hansen, in one of his books, he lays out an over-the-top, incredible, miraculous scenario in which he would believe in God. So this is what Hansen says. He says, if the heavens were to open up, if those present are knocked down by the force of an ear-shattering thunderclap, if a Zeus-like figure were to break through and point a finger at me and say, I have had quite enough, 
of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, Norward Hansen, I most certainly do exist. Hansen says, if that happened uh, next Tuesday, by the way, if that happened next Tuesday, I'd believe in God. Well, in response to this, Willard writes this, but would he believe? Almost certainly he would not. And if he did, he would not be believing in God. That thing that appeared, whatever it was, was not God, just something very big. Would he worship it? Would he think that it was the creator of the physical universe? Would he think it was holy or just amazing and scary? He would perhaps visit a psychiatrist, and then perhaps he would begin to think about what could be accomplished by special effects. And Willard continues on, and he sums up this section by saying, believing is not something you just up and do all by yourself. Now, maybe our demands on God are not quite as grandiose as Hansen's, but we're all susceptible to this fallacy, aren't we? We ought not point a finger at Hansen and say, well, I would never do that because I know that I have in my own way. And so that's why this morning the question that I want to ask of us is this, where are you currently resisting God? Where are you currently resisting God? And that question is phrased very carefully because it's not a question of if we are resisting God, it's a question of where. For those here today who would not claim the Christian faith, I I would submit that your resistance lies at a foundational level. Perhaps you have discovered that the demands of following Jesus are challenging. You've counted up the cost, to use Jesus' own words, and the cost is too high in your estimation. And you may not agree with me, but I would submit that you are resisting God by rejecting the initial life-changing claims of Jesus. And for those of us here today who would claim the Christian faith, discovering where our resistance lies takes a bit more work. Is there an area of your life you know that you've been clinging on to? a habit of rebellion from your old self that continues to rear its head? Is there a good gift from God that you have distorted by making it ultimate in your life? What are you tempted to trust in instead of God? Ask these questions of yourself, but but don't make this a solo journey. Because you see, often we're too close to ourselves to be truly objective. And so invite others that know you well into this conversation. This is terrifying, but ask your spouse, ask your friends, ask your community group, in what ways do you see me currently resisting God? And then when they speak, listen. It's a hard question to ask, but it's an important question to ask because you see, when we come to God and surrender, we do not get to pick and choose what we surrender to Him. That's not how it works. No, as the great hymn reminds us, we must surrender all. I surrender all. Or remember the words of theologian and author Abraham Kuyper who wrote this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry out, mine. So I have to ask again, where are you currently resisting God? 
For me, I'm on a journey where I'm realizing that a consistent place of resistance in, in my life actually is, is food, which may sound strange or maybe even funny, but it's true. You see, food is a good gift from God that, in, that is intended for our enjoyment and our pleasure. It's part of his wonderful provision in our lives. But too often in my life, I have taken the good and I have made it ultimate. I have turned to food instead of turning to God. After a long day, tired and exhausted, exhausted, too often I stress eat. I'm not even hungry, but instead I'm coping in an unhealthy manner. And it's unhealthy on two levels, right? Because yes, it's unhealthy for like, my body to like, go back in for another chip, but it's also unhealthy spiritually. And that's what I'm realizing. That the fact that I turn to food instead of turning to God is actually a discipleship issue. It's a following Jesus issue. It's evidence that there is still a gap between the life that I was created to live and the life that I often live, day in and day out. It's coping in an unhealthy way, and I think for me, I'll only say this for me, but the way that I often relate to food is even sinful. And so this is a growth area for me. And then this realization of my resistance isn't brand new. I've been in a battle mostly a losing battle with my weight since high school. But this past month, I did a 30-day clean eating detox. It's like a more intense version of the Whole30 if such a thing exists. And through this process, God has graciously revealed to me in fresh ways some of the lifestyle changes that I'll have to make in order to truly surrender this to God and stop resisting him in this area of my life. That's me. How about you? Where are you? currently resisting God. I mean, this is a problem, isn't it? It's hard to know God because we resist him. It's a problem that is lived out in my own experience, and it is a problem that we see contained in Stephen's sermon. But remember, I said there was something in those verses that we are going to come back to. Stephen's mention of the righteous one, because when Stephen mentions the righteous one, what he's doing is he's tipping his hat to the solution to the problem. There's not just a problem, there's also a solution. And the righteous one, of course, is Jesus Christ. That's the righteous one of which the prophets foretold years and years and years before he even showed up. The righteous one, Jesus. And so the solution to our problem of of our resistance, of our difficulty in knowing God, the solution to the problem reads this way. If you want to know God, Jesus is your only option. If we want to know God, Jesus is our only option. And really, this actually also functions as a great summary statement of Stephen's sermon. God isn't bound by buildings. The temple is important, but it points to and it is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is greater. He is the true meeting place between God and man. So if you want to stop resisting God and truly know him, going to him through Jesus is your only option. And, and, and more than just being a great summary statement of Stephen's sermon, this is at the very center of the Christian faith. You want to know what the Christian faith is about? It's all about Jesus. This was the consistent witness of the early church, wasn't it? The religious leaders bring in the apostles. Hey, stop talking about Jesus. It's like, hey, we know you can kill us. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later and 6,000 miles away, and I'm standing here saying, we will never stop talking about Jesus in this church. If you are in a Christian church, including this one, and you don't hear about Jesus like an annoying amount, that's a problem. 
because everything pivots on the person of Jesus. That's why there's a cross here. That's why there's a cross there right in the middle. That's why the cross is the first of our five values because it is all about Jesus, beginning, middle, and end. I mean, this is the great story, right? I mean, this is the Sunday school answer is Jesus. The teacher is trying to describe to her classroom a squirrel for an object lesson, and she can't get the kids to, 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 to give her the answer of squirrel. They're, they're tentative, and, and she's, she's like, why can't they? But they know what a squirrel is, and finally a kid raises his hand, and he says, you know, I, I don't know. It sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> it's like kind of always true. Sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Our entire faith, our entire worldview, the entirety of our lives all turns about on what we believe about Jesus, that his life, death, and resurrection made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. But how? How can we be reconciled to God? How can we come to know God through Jesus? Well, we've already hinted at it this morning. We come to know God through Jesus by surrendering everything. And no one said it better than Jesus himself in Matthew 16. If anyone, these are Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cost of following Jesus is nothing less than complete and total surrender and commitment. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you. We don't get to pick and choose what we surrender to God. There isn't any way around it. This type of commitment, this type of surrender is radical. That's the word that we ought to use to describe this. Radical commitment. And today in our world, unadulterated, radical commitment is looked at as odd. Radical commitment to anything, much less radical commitment to Jesus, is looked at a bit funny. So here's our closing question. Are you committing radically? Are you committing radically? Because this isn't just a one-time deal. Sure, yes, the first time that you radically commit, that's monumentally important because that is the moment when you cross from death to life. That is the moment where you can mark it down and say, this is when I became a Christian. But Jesus' call to deny ourselves is a daily call. Self-denial and choosing of Jesus ought to be the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle of the Christian faith. And, and not so that we can be saved again initially, but so that we can experience our ongoing salvation and our ongoing transformation more and more into the likeness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Monday, deny yourself, choose Jesus. Tuesday, deny yourself, choose Jesus. Wednesday, and on and on and on. Radical daily commitment should characterize every single Christian, but too often it doesn't. Radical commitment certainly characterized Stephen's life. He was even willing to die for Jesus. But don't miss this. Long before Stephen died for Jesus, he lived for Jesus. Stephen had committed radically in his life long before that moment when he got arrested and dragged in front of the council. We see a portrait of him emerge from the first verses in Acts 6. He was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. He was wise, eloquent. He was able to explain Jesus clearly and defend him passionately. From the brief window that we get into his life, it's clear that Stephen had taken seriously Jesus' call to radically commit to him every single day. Pastor and author William Willimon puts it this way. 
The story of Stephen reminds us practitioners, us, me, of polite, civil, mentally balanced religion that once, once upon a time, there were Christians who quite joyfully parted with possessions, family, friends, even life itself in order to remain faithful. Luke sees Stephen as a hero of the faith, a quite rational person who died for the same faith by which he lived. Isn't that beautiful? Stephen died for the same faith by which he lived. He committed radically not just in his death, but in his life too. Will we? Will we commit radically to Jesus, answering his daily call to take up our cross and follow him? Well, Stephen, in in his death, which is contained in the last part of Acts 7 and the first part of Acts 8, the rest of Stephen's story, in his death, Stephen was given an incredible gift by God. And it comes near the end of his story. It comes as his listeners cover their ears and rush at him to drag him outside so that they can stone him to death. Stephen might have had more to say. His sermon might have been longer, but his listeners won't have any more of it. And as he is being taken out, as he is being stoned, this is what Acts 7 55 and 56 records for us. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And and don't miss that. The Son of Man is standing because even John said it correctly earlier. The Son of Man sits at the right hand of God. And so, so scholars think, Scholars think that that Stephen sees Jesus standing because there was these false witnesses that stood against Stephen and now Jesus stands as the true witness. The true witnesses of Stephen's life and commitment to him. He stands as his true witness and he stands to receive him into his presence. Isn't that beautiful? And And so Stephen gets this gift of seeing the glory of God and glory is hard, right? Glory is a lot like beauty. I mean, you know what beauty is but not because somebody defined it for you. You know what beauty is because we see those paintings in the back. You know what beauty is because you get to hear John Brewer play on Sunday morning, because you get to hear Sydney sing. It's beautiful, right? In the same way, we would say that's glorious. Glory's hard. This isn't perfect, but we might say that God's glory, God's glory is his holiness on display, his perfection on display. God's glory is when who he is, his differentness, his limitlessness, his perfection. It's when who he is is projected for us. We are not that way, but it's when it's projected for us to see. In other words, God's glory is Jesus, the fullness of God come to dwell with us. It's no mistake that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, when he rode in on a donkey, when the crowds were there, that's, we celebrate that today. It's Palm Sunday. It's no mistake when that happened 2,000 plus years ago, it's no mistake when that happened, the crowds greeted him with this refrain, refrain, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But paradoxically, Jesus' glory comes through suffering. Before Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. He was put on trial and had to stand as false witnesses spoke lies against him. Jesus was mocked and spit on and then he was beaten, bruised. Jesus was made to carry his own cross and then he was nailed to that cross, murdered even though he had done nothing wrong. 
and, and we wouldn't call any of that glorious, but it's not the end of Jesus' story. Jesus' story didn't end on the cross. In fact, it was only beginning because death couldn't hold him, because the grave is empty, and because as Stephen saw, he is now reigning at the right hand of the Father. Glory to God in the highest indeed. Stephen committed radically both in life and in death, and as he passed from this life to the next, he saw the greatest of gifts. He saw God's glory, Jesus, in his rightful place at the center of the universe. Will that be our story? Will we surrender our resistance to God and go to him by radically committing to Jesus? I hope so. That's my hope and prayer for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus and for him being your glory. Thank you that we get to see a picture, a portrait of your glory by looking at Jesus. Help us to look at Jesus every day. Help us to surrender all of our lives to Jesus every single day and help us to be transformed through that surrender and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful for you, we're grateful for Jesus, and we're grateful for the beautiful story of your servant Stephen. Amen.